Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel in the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is David Cox, a Professor of History at Southern Virginia University. And today I'm going to be chatting to Professor Cox about his new book, The Religious Life of Robert E. Lee, recently published by Erdman's in the prestigious series, The Library of Religious Biography. David, first of all, congratulations on the book and secondly, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we begin to chat about your book? Well, I think one of the key elements in all this saga is that I am an Episcopal priest. I was ordained in the Diocese of Connecticut in the States. And in 1987, I came down to be the rector or the pastor of R.E. Lee Memorial Church. Uh, It's in Lexington, Virginia. It's the Episcopal Church there. And it is named for you-know-who. And I I was the pastor there, the rector, for from 1987 until 2000. Then I left to to do other things, uh, which eventually had led me to Southern Virginia University and the teaching that I'm doing. But along the way, I got very curious about why in the world would a congregation name itself for a Civil War general. So after I left the church, I began reading the letters of Lee and began to find out why. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, you've published a great book and a great series. Uh, The Library of Religious Biography has got some of the best work uh, in its field. What was it like to write a book for that series in particular? Well, I... that I started writing and I wasn't quite sure where it was going to end up. And so, as I think you folks would say on that side of the the world, I was gobsmacked to be accepted by a a series that I really respected amongst authors, one of whom I had studied under and many of whom I had read with the highest respect. So I have just been astonished at uh, at what Lee would call providence. I would say good fortune, whatever it is. I've been very, very pleased and deeply gratified and honored. Well, it, it is a great series, and uh, there's some really remarkable books in it that have shaped the field in many ways, as this book will too, I think. Um, Lee's a very controversial figure. Why, why did you decide to write about him in particular? He wasn't quite as controversial when I started, which was 2003. (laughs) (laughs) So, and it started off to be just kind of a nice little study of what he believed. And one thing led to another, and suddenly I was writing an entire biography. That was not my intent. I was planning on focusing specifically on his religion. Uh, But the more I read, the more it turned into a story of his life and the spiritual element within that. Let me add that uh, historians had long recognized that Lee was religious, but they were primarily secular historians, military historians, and so they might not know 
some of the ins and outs of theology um, uh, that would enter into the saga. On the other hand, there were people who would write about Lee from a religious point of view, and basically they were polishing his halo. They were not uh, using any kinds of particularly historical methods in analyzing things. So uh, I kind of combined the two of them, history and theology, to come up with what I did. As it happened, it was published shortly after the incidents in um, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, the uh, murders of Mother Emanuel. And those happened as we were in the very final stages, and so that did influence uh, some of the book, uh, particularly some of the, the themes in the later chapter, to try to bring out some of his role uh, in terms of race relations. Mm-hmm. As he was living, and then it appeared three months before Charlottesville and the incidents there over at my alma mater, the University of Virginia. So it was rather a surprise. There was certainly nothing that I had anticipated. Hmm. Do you think, from an author's point of view, do you think that these events, these often very tragic events that you refer to, uh, have in some ways shaped a public appetite to read about Lee? Yes and no. That is to say that uh, there are people who have been interested in Lee and wanted to find out more about him, and the various events encouraged them to do so. That's the positive side. Hmm. On the other side, there, Lee is a controversial person, and often in when there is controversy, people kind of dig into their own points of view, whatever those may be. Hmm. And I, I come somewhere in between. You know, he he is in that sense neither black nor white. Uh-huh. And, and so, uh, there, I think there there were a number of people who would refuse to read the book, uh, unfortunately, um, because they think that they have this picture of Lee, and that's the way it is. And I understand that, but then that's part of the problem that we have generally in our world today. Uh, you know, the, it's a very divided situation in our society, and I think in many ways in the UK and elsewhere, hmm. too. You've shaped your project in quite an interesting way. You've chosen to communicate his story in 21 short chapters. Can you tell us a little bit about your thinking in terms of structure? Why did you choose that structure? Well, it was fairly logical. I, I started with his birth and ended with his death. So, <laughs> in that regard, <laughs> is there an appendix? Uh, the, the structure was uh, the, the structure was kind of foreordained in a way, but uh, but there were several points when I would interrupt the narrative, and uh, particularly in the center of the book, when I talk about some of the theological understandings that he had come to develop uh, in the middle of his life and that I believe shaped the com- remainder of his life in a very profound way. Hmm. I, I, I thought it was read through, certainly the first half of it, that there was um, often a real sense in which the, the chapter length allowed you to capture a moment uh, or a particular issue in a very compelling way. I, I did find it quite an attractive way to present it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank well, you for saying so. Well, tell us a little bit about his uh, his religious life then. What kind of a Christian was Lee? Well, I think we have to go back to the Christianity 
with which he grew up, which was in a divided household. His father, who had been, uh, as your readers, your listeners may or may not know, his father was an aide-de-camp to George Washington. He was the man who said at, at Washington's death, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. And like Washington, he held a religious point of view that uh, that is almost or even could be characterized as deism. It's a very enlightened faith, a very reasonable faith, mm-hmm. uh, a faith that was common to many leaders of the American Revolution, including Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. So this was a faith of reason, of duty, of ethics, and it was also perhaps not to that same degree, but to a large extent, it was what prevailed in the colonial Episcopal Church in Virginia. Virginia was Anglican, officially, uh, part of the Church of England. And so the preachers, lay or clergy, would often uh, cite the leaders of the day of the Church of England, such as John Tillotson, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was a latitudinarian. So leaning in that direction that Henry Lee took a few steps further. So there was that on the one side. His mother, on the other hand, was profoundly influenced by the Second Great Awakening, by the evangelical revival that uh, that uh, returned to America in the very early years of the 19th century. So they were, I, I, I call theirs, a house divided by a common faith. Hmm. Um, it, they're very different, and, and there was some tension between the two of them on any number of reasons, but this was certainly one. Well, Lee saw both of these, and in many ways he was an inheritor of each side of things. And what is particularly interesting is that like American Protestantism generally, he began to assimilate and integrate the two of them together. So uh, so that um, he does prize nature and reason on the one hand, but on the other hand, he in many ways is very evangelical. And one of the key points that unites the two is his idea of providence. Now, by providence, people from Henry Lee's point of view would take the idea of an almighty creator, of nature's God, as we have in the Declaration of Independence. And with that, a sense that this creator God guides nations, but doesn't have much to do with us as individuals. On the other hand, the evangelicals say that this God may guide nations, but he also guides individuals, that things happen uh, two individuals as a direct result of the will of God. So Lee ends up with this idea that if something happens in the world, then unless it's the direct result of human sin, then most likely it's the result of God's will. God directs it. And now, by no means is he alone on this. Lincoln Stonewall Jackson, many Americans across denominations at that time, particularly in Protestant ones, believed much the same thing. Hmm. You've described Lee as being influenced by this uh, deist framework inherited from his father and his mother's evangelicalism. Is it fair to describe him as a typical Episcopalian? 
he would be by Virginia standards, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virginia is kind of a unique place. Ask any Virginian, and he or she will be glad to tell you that. But uh, in in the Episcopal Church, uh, Virginia was strongly evangelical, and yet it did have this uh, very uh, 18th century Anglican background within it. So it, it it was it was certainly a uh, it's it's Bishop William Meade who was a dominating figure of the first half of the 19th century in Virginia certainly and also to some extent in the Episcopal Church as a whole was very much a Protestant Episcopalian and yet he also had some of these hallmarks of the the latitudinarian. Um, Religion that I described earlier. Hmm. Now, in, in and, the book, and, and Meade, by the way, Meade, Meade by the way, uh, he knew everybody, but he was also directly related to uh, the woman that Lee married, both through her mother, but also he was godfather to Mary Custis, hmm. whom Lee married. Hmm. So they had a very close relationship. And also, not only that, Meade was the pastor of Christ Church in Alexandria when little Robert Lee was five years old. And so young Lee read his, uh, said his catechism to the then young William Meade. So they had a lot of connections. Fascinating. You, you, I think you have a chapter in the book on Meade, don't you? Um, I do. Is there, mm-hmm. is, is there any explanation as to why, given this huge influence that Meade has, in, in that home, that Robert Ely is not confirmed in his childhood. That's a mystery. Yes, uh, no one, including me, is able to uh, definitively say why that was. Hmm. Um, I th- I think growing my my thesis, not even my thesis, my my theory is that growing up in that divided household, he wanted to be his own person. He demonstrates that on a number of occasions, that he really does have a mind of his own. And he's just not ready. And then often, he's not around. Uh, He is in the army, and they take him from one place to another. Mm -hmm. So that may be an element. But I think the main thing is he's just not ready. Having said that, he really does begin to get involved in the life of the church. He's, he always goes to church. There's no, no question about that. But as a young husband, he begins to get more involved in the life of the church, including sitting on the vestry or the governing bodies mm-hmm. of the, the church in, up in uh, New York, where he was stationed for a time. So it's only in 1853 that he... Um, is confirmed. But now here's another element on that. In Bishop Meade's Virginia, confirmation was the sacramental equivalent of of conversion. Mm -hmm. Whereas you might have Baptists or so forth who have a a conversion experience, Mm -hmm. the Episcopalians have confirmation. And so that's another reason why he might not have been ready. Uh, He did not ever really have that kind of dramatic conversion as his wife, by the way, had on the 4th of July in 1830. Mm-hmm. She can even date the, she can date it. Mm-hmm. She can give the hour in which she first believed. Well, Lee's story is quite different. And so it's an, a growing faith over the years. 
but it is quickened in some ways by the death of his mother-in-law, of Mrs. Custis. So uh, it's a few months later that he is confirmed. And I think perhaps he realized the shortness and uncertainty of life and decided that that, that was the time to join his daughters in receiving confirmation. Hmm, fascinating. So in some ways, I think you're arguing, David, that uh, Lee's failure to be confirmed as a youth is in some senses a sign of religious seriousness in that he's not willing, yes. to, he's not willing to, yes. to, to, to take vows or to, you know, to, to make a profession he's not ready for, but that he, he takes the experience extremely seriously. Well, another example of that is that, uh, that as I mentioned, Mary Lee was con- found some kind of religious experience on the 4th of July in 1830. And it's just a couple of months later that Robert Lee asks her to marry him, and she's going through this crisis of faith. How can she love God but also this handsome young lieutenant? Mm-hmm. Well, it surely would help her if he would convert mm-hmm and become as she was. And she, so she is basically telling him that, as is his, the, her mother, and he's writing love letters to her, and she's sending him sermons. So, <laughs> is this stuff so, of but, yeah, Yes, I'm amazed they got married, but, <laughs> but he clearly wanted to get married, but he was not willing, in a sense, to sell his soul even to God <laughs> to do so. He was not willing to sacrifice um, what he believed, even if that was unclear. Uh, so in that sense, he really was his own person. And that lasts him through life. So the couple get married. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still not confirmed. They begin Correct. to have children. He's still not confirmed. Mm-hmm. She's much more evangelical than he happens to be. They both take religion seriously, diligent church attendance when he's at home at least. What's he like as a father instructing his children? Is is he raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as it were? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. And and while he is not a, a card-carrying evangelical in that sense, he is becoming more and more so as as he goes along. And some of that, I'm sure, is her influence. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that is, his, is Bishop Mead's influence and the prevailing sense in the Diocese of Virginia and some of that is in by in contrast to the environment in which he is placed. For example, I mentioned he was on the vestry of St. Uh, John's up in in, uh, in Brooklyn, in that area. Mm-hmm. And New York is kind of a high church place. It's not necessarily it's, – it's, it's beginning to be influenced by the Oxford and Cambridge movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York had been high church in, in a more Tory kind of a sense earlier. But that's not the Virginia tradition. And so um, they uh, he has a rather scandalous comment about Puseyism, for example, that um, that I will not quote, but uh, he was it was a little barracks room humor, but that expressed his opinion of some of this high church stuff. Where he encounters the Roman Catholic Church, mm. and he's baffled by that. It's this is just anathema to a good Virginia churchman. So that is helping to define who he is. He has a lot of he has some respect for it, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not where he is personally. 
uh, he finds himself increasingly a, a good, strong Virginia churchman, which is uh, low church. Uh, I mean, I think you can compare that with the uh, churchmanship, I believe, of the Church of Ireland. Yeah, very much so uh, in the 19th century. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so he, he heads down to Mexico. He has his experience of Catholicism there. He, I think he attends Mass, doesn't he? Uh, he does. He, I think he's quite impressed by the women he sees in worship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the devotion, yeah, and he can't understand it really. Yeah. How, how can how can they worship when they don't understand the language? How yeah. can they? Uh, is this a lot of superstitious mumbo jumbo, or hocus pocus? I guess I should say the that the, the, the there's uh, and, and so there's this combination of respect, but also of resistance. Mm-hmm. Is th- does his response to Mexican Catholicism? represent a broadening or a narrowing of his mind? I think a bit of both, actually. Because on the one hand, uh, as an army officer, he does get around uh, a great deal, and he does visit churches of many different kinds. And this, on the one hand, broadens him. Uh, He has to grapple with the reality that things that are foreign to him are very spiritually meaningful to other people, Hmm. sometimes people whom he respects. Hmm. On the other hand, he really does go back to the Episcopal Church with a great deal of gratitude and is in the process deepened in his own way. And in a way, that's something that I can relate to. I went to Yale Divinity School, which was ecumenical, Mm -hmm. uh, interdenominational, and so I got exposed to uh, quite a few religious traditions, uh, all Christian at this point. Um, but they, are, on the one hand, uh, caused me to appreciate them for what they were, but at the same time to appreciate my own tradition. So he, he, he appreciates what he sees in Catholic churches in Mexico. He, he, he becomes aware, perhaps, of um, the... I was going to say the relativity of belief. That's not quite. It's not quite the right expression, is it? But a sense that uh, a sense that other people can do things with equal sincerity, but very differently. Does very, he, very differently? Yeah. Yeah. D- d- does he bring that sense of relative um, self awareness into his thinking about African American slavery in the same time? No, I don't think he does. I don't think he relates those two at all. That's a very good question. I've not thought of it, but okay. uh, I, I, I no, no. Where he what he does bring that that breadth of respect to the religions of the the different soldiers who are fighting under him in the Civil War. Okay, and would they all be Protestant religions? No, no. That's the thing. They would be Catholic. They would be Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know of any. Others, mm-hmm. but but certainly a wide variety of, of Christian, mm-hmm. but also Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, when the uh, when a rabbi uh, requests that Jewish soldiers be allowed, and there were quite a few Richmond, Richmond, for example, had a very lively Jewish community. Um, when uh, High Holy Days would come around, and the rabbi would ask if the Jewish soldiers could be released from duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee wrote back very respectfully um, to the rabbi, saying that, yes, of course, that would be possible if conditions allowed. He made clear for 
the rabbi, and to anyone else who asked without without any discrimination whatsoever, mm-hmm. that the military responsibilities have to come first. But within that context, if it's possible for them to be released from duty to worship in the manner which they wish, mm-hmm. that he would certainly encourage that. Mm-hmm. So how would you describe his... Um how would you describe his approach to thinking about African-American slavery in that case? Well, he, he, well, he, he, first of all, he comes out of the background of, from Bishop Mead, who was certainly a very Southern bishop in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, Mead for decades was instructing his people, many of whom were plantation owners, the, you know, the elite like the Lees and the Custises and, and that ilk. Mm-hmm. He was instructing them to, um, to teach their servants. Servants was the euphemism for slaves. Mm-hmm. He, wa- he believed that all people needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of their color, regardless of their condition of servitude. Now, in some ways, this was quite radical, and after a while, it, it almost became illegal. But you have uh, Mrs. Lee growing up in a household in which um, her mother at Arlington House, uh, the big mansion on the hill above Washington, um, was teaching the slaves to read and write. Mm-hmm. Now, after Nat Turner's rebellion, this was illegal. Sure. And yet they continued to do that because they believed that... Uh, able to read the gospel in in the Bible. So that was the context in which he grew up, That and that therefore that, that inherently made very clear from Bishop Mead that slaves were people too. Not everybody in the South agreed with that, and they certainly didn't act like that. Now, uh, as for slavery itself, he wrote somewhat controversially to his wife, controversially, i.e., as people read back into it, that uh, he believed that slavery was an evil, that it was contrary to God's will, and that according to God's providence, again that word, God would... In, in God's time, end it. Now that has a number of implications. One is, it's in God's time, not in the time of abolitionists, and so he opposed abolitionism. That would be forcing God's hand. Mm-hmm. And there's some ironies about that, because evangelicalism at that point was was trying to reform society in all sorts of other ways. Sure, sure. So there's a little contradiction there. He, but the other thing is that uh, that he also believed that slavery was an evil to blacks and whites. But he said, and here's some, where some controversy is particularly strong, he said it is more evil for the whites than for the blacks. And his thinking here is that uh, at least blacks are taken care of to some extent, that they get to eat, they, they are fed, and so forth. But that it is slavery is morally degrading to the souls of white folks. Um, 
we find this uh, same phenomenon, actually, Frederick Douglass pointing out that uh, he was the uh, uh, he was the slave who became the the great abolitionist leader in the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that his white mistress began to teach him how to read, and then the husband says, "Oh no, no, no! You must never do that." And as she became more and more into the life of a slave owner, the more cruel she began became. Mm-hmm. And Lee is pointing out the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, People read that and think, well, now how how contradictory or how absurd. Of course it was bad for the blacks and much worse. Well, yes, we can say that. But his point was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that he, he recognized the degradation that occurs uh, um, among his own people. Mm-hmm. It's a theme, isn't it, in Civil War polemic? Uh, the, the, the Southern apologists often see slavery as a very paternalistic system almost of welfare which they contrast yes. to the exploitation of the industrial north yes it, it yes it is and and lee grew up in a very paternalistic uh home i mean my goodness he his his father-in-law was the adopted son of george washington hmm. so i mean they you know it's, it's a very paternalistic Sometimes people who write about the Civil War... Uh, I deal with that at the very end of the book when I'm trying to... Yeah. So, so, sometimes oh. people, people who write about the Civil War, David, sometimes set it up as a theological contest. Uh, I, I think some, some of the, um, again, Southern apologists would try and claim that uh, in some senses the war between the states is, is a theological contest between an orthodox South and a much more liberal as well as industrial, religiously liberal North. Is that a sense that you find in, in Lee's writing? No. No, it never deals with that. No. No, never does. He, tells- he does believe that, uh, that he, he writes his daughter, this is in about 1862, early on. He does write uh, that, the, um, that the South will win the war only if God wills it. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say that the Southerners are not acting in ways in which they might deserve to win. And it's a fine line between the kind of Pelagian idea that we've got to act in a particular way in order to please God, mm-hmm. um, or that if we if we do that, if we act in a particular way, God will bless us directly. Although there's there's certainly some of that in in uh, in classic. Orthodox Christianity. Sure. So he, he's dealing with some some sort of very uh, subtle theological nuances here, but the the key is that he knows as a as one of the leading military figures of his era, um, he knows what the South is up against and how poor their resources are, how great the resources are of the North. Hmm. And so he concludes that the only way that they really can win is if God wills it. Hmm. But that, of course, is a point that becomes very important when the South loses. Right. Do you have any sense that at the end of the war, his belief in providence has changed? Well, let me, let me back up for your listeners for just a moment. Because I, I, there are two key decisions that Lee makes. One is to enter in on the side of Virginia and thus the South mm-hmm. in 1861. 
And then the next big decision is what in the world to do now that the South is lost. So, And both, I find, relate to his religion. In the first case, as, as people may know, he was asked, he's the only general in history to be invited to lead each of the two opposing armies in a war. So um, when he goes over uh, and is, is asked by um, uh, Francis Blair on behalf of President Lincoln to lead the northern troops, he declines. And he does so pretty much on the basis of his father's more ethically based sense of duty and loyalty rather than any kind of outright evangelical um, uh, religious emphases. A lot of people used to describe him pacing the floor at Arlington and dropping to his knees and more contemporaneous seeing his own say that that's not so. And so it was a very uh, calculated in the sense of, of carefully thought through on the basis of um, loyalties and so forth, rather than based on what he believed theologically. You know, didn't look to the Bible for this. Yeah. He looked more to to uh, uh, Aristotle. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Now. So that so that led him to decline uh, leading the the troops of the north, and then within days he was asked to lead Virginia's troops, and he did, and one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. Okay, fast forward almost precisely four years to Appomattox. He is facing certain defeat on the hands of Grant, and uh, some of his generals say, "Well, now we can continue to fight if we." let our troops disperse and run like rabbits, and they will basically uh, wage a guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. He says, absolutely not. He says, as Christian men, we must look the fact in the face that the Confederacy is a lost cause. I'm somewhat freely quoting here, but mm-hmm. only by a bit. Mm-hmm. And so, as Christian men, you know, there's that theme. He begins to realize that he, if the if the South would win only if it, God wills it, well, the South lost. What was it, therefore, that God willed? Mm-hmm. So he writes a priest friend whom he had known during the siege at Lit and uh, in uh, Petersburg. Mm-hmm. He he writes that it is clear what God wills, and that now that the South is willing to have peace, he hoped that it would be a just and lasting peace. And to this, and here I am quoting directly, Mm -hmm. to this end, all good men should labor. Mm -hmm. And he even, you'll be pleased to know, uses the proper British pronunciation of labor, complete with the U. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so then the question is, what is he supposed to do? A lot of people wanted his name for their business. They wanted him to write his memoirs. They wanted him to lead their schools, some of which were quite prestigious. And nothing seems quite right. He himself thinks about farming, but he really doesn't know too much about that. Uh, So this tiny little devastated school in Lexington uh, asks if he would become their president. And this attracts him. He goes to talk with another priest uh, and says that this door – the priest, by the way, is trying to interest him in some more prestigious school. Mm-hmm. And Lee says no, that – again, I'm quoting – this 
door and not another, unquote, was open to him by providence. And so unlike the first decision, to this he feels some sense of divine call. And that's what he brings to Lexington. Fascinating. At the end of the war, as he thought back over the many hundreds of thousands of men who had died, right? how did his religious beliefs help him cope with the fact of death, including the death of Stonewall Jackson, for example? I think here again, in kind of a, for us, maybe a creepy way, his idea of providence um, enters in. Mm-hmm. That, in a sense, uh, the bullet had that man's name on it, mm-hmm. is really what it amounts to. That um, that there's a, that God determines a time to live and a time to die, and apparently God had chosen that particular moment for Stonewall Jackson to die, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, I think from a more removed point of view, we've got to recognize that Lee did certainly place a, a, thousands upon thousands of men within that possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, for bullets to have names on it, but um, he 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 doesn't see it that way. He, he's a military man and, and he's doing his job, but also God's doing God's job. And at the same time, he does mourn people right and left. He he is extremely. Um, uh, he, he, he carries a lot of grief, and sometimes for Jackson, uh, sometimes for his own family. His, his own daughter died of natural causes, but she died during the war. Um, he often will be talking of, of people. Uh, he will write a lot of letters in which he will express God's will as he sees it. Yeah. Well, David, you've, you've written this really magnificent book about Lee. In all that you learned about him, what surprised you most? I think that this above all, and this may be where I go from here, that after the war, starting at Appomattox, this leader of the the Southern military, perhaps the paramount military leader of the Confederacy, became the paramount voice and moral force in the South, in the years after the war, for peace. He came to Washington College to bind up wounds, and he did a remarkable job as an educator. But his purpose was to train young men, wherever they came from, which included sometimes the North, Mm -hmm. to go to their homes and to build up prosperity and to make life better so that there would be no more war. That was, I think, the the greatest surprise I had of all. Hmm. Well, David, we've taken up a lot of your time today talking about this wonderful book, The Religious Life of Robert E. Lee, published by Eardmans. Thank you. I've enjoyed it immensely. Well, it's been wonderful. But before we wind up, can you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Well, I have just published a book on Lee Chapel, the the chapel that Lee had built uh, at Washington and Lee. Very good. And uh, that's available for purchase. statue of Lee is placed. And that's available for purchase. It is. Uh, it's, 
Well, it, it is. It, it's available for purchase on a very limited basis, either from me personally or uh, from uh, from the uh, bookstore of, of the of the Lee Chapel. But people could contact me at my email address, which is r david cox d a v i d c o x at earthlink e a r t h l i n k dot net. That's r david cox at earthlink dot net, or at the Lee Chapel Bookstore. The other thing I'm curious about and look forward to exploring more is this question of Lee as peacemaker along with somebody else who's an unlikely peacemaker, but who I also believe was a major force for peace after the war, and that is Ulysses S. Grant. Hmm. Yeah, the the spirit of Appomattox that they forged, and I think that the our country would be a lot better had that uh, spirit prevailed much more fully than it was able to do. Hmm. Well, those are great projects, David. I look forward to pursuing some of those. Thank you again for writing this book, Religious Life of Robert E. Lee, published, as I said, by Eerdmans in the Library of Religious Biography series, a great series and a great contribution to it. Thanks for coming to tell us about your work. Uh, take I've, care. Been, I've enjoyed it immensely. I thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening to the show. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you.